once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Literature is full of characters who interfere in the lives of strangers. If they didn't, there wouldn't be a story to tell. What will your story be? Jeff Norris, Director of Young Adults and Families, continues the series The Glorious Grace, Designs of Grace, with this message entitled Pursuing Grace, which covers John chapter 4. And to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for Jeff. Grateful for the gifts you've given to him and the heart for you. I pray now that you would use him in our lives, anoint him, speak through him. May we be blessed. May you be honored because he teaches us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, Randy. Always love the opportunity to open the scriptures with you and see what God has for us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 4. John chapter 4. If you don't, it's okay. It'll be on the screen in a moment. won't read it right away right now. But as you're turning there, uh, as I was thinking about where we'll be heading this morning, as we continue in this series of glorious grace, we'll be talking about this morning um, pursuing grace. And, and I don't mean that in the sense of that we are pursuing grace, but rather a grace that pursues us. And this is the nature of the grace of Christ. And it reminded me of the videos that have been uh, really popular on various social media outlets recently in the last five years or so. And uh, I've enjoyed watching these videos that seem to have a common theme. And that is, uh, there's a homeless person who uh, is going about their day as only they know how. And for whatever reason, circumstances in their life, whatnot, this is where they are. They're on the street side, on the bench, whatever. And this man or woman walks up to them and brings them some type of demonstration, although they wouldn't say this, but this is the language of the Bible, a demonstration of grace, of giving them something that maybe they don't deserve, they definitely don't deserve or whatever, but they, they, all of a sudden their life has changed. Maybe it's through this big wad of cash that they just bring up and say, hey, I'd like for you to have this. And the person is startled. You want me to have this? What's the catch? What's going on? There's no catch. We just want to bless you with it. Or maybe it's this enormous amount of food here uh, you can eat for, for days. But Whatever it is, this homeless person's life is dramatically changed by a grace that pursued them, not that they pursued. It just happened out of nowhere, at least as far as they're concerned. It seemed to manifest and surprise them. And this is, this is the story of the gospel, is it not? We're going about our lives, living them as only we know how, in opposition to God and his kingdom. And if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to think back to that time. Maybe it's an instant, a day. You, can rem- you remember the day when your eyes were opened and you understood and saw and perceived the grace of God and you saw your need for him. Maybe it was a season, a period of time where over the course of time you begin to see that the truths of, of the scriptures and of the gospel were true and, and you received them and placed your faith in Jesus. But whatever it may be, this grace pursued you. You weren't looking for it. And God invaded your life with this pursuing grace. And when your eyes became open to it, your life was different from that point forward. Everything changed. And that's the story that we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 4. This is a story that if you've been in or around church for any length of time, you've likely heard it. It's a story that has been referred to affectionately as the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman. And it's the story of where Jesus encounters this woman 
at a well that is an ancient well that had been there for many, many years after his travels. So let's, let's read together John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's, that's not the author of this book, John, that's John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let me comment on just a couple of things real quick before we continue reading. First, you'll, you'll see there that uh, it said that he had, in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. It's interesting language that's used there in the English trans- translation. Because the fact of the matter is, is that he didn't have to. It, Jesus, being a Jewish man, was a part of a culture of, of Jewish uh, belief and thought during that day where there was great animosity, even hatred that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. And most of the Jews in that day and time would have chosen not to go through Samaria on their way north to Galilee. If they're trying to get from Judea in the south to uh, Galilee in the north, they most often would have taken various routes to avoid Samaria. And not only that, sometimes their purpose in doing that was to go to the temples of Samaria on the outer parts of Samaria and desecrate them. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. I don't have time this morning to get into why this hatred existed. There's some great resources out there if you love historical and cultural context like I do. I can give you some resources, some great ones online and whatnot. But uh, suffice it to say, they didn't like each other. And when traveling, they would go out of their way not to go through Samaria. However, the fastest route from Judea to Galilee was through Samaria. And Jesus chose that route. So he didn't necessarily have to. He wanted to. And he wanted to be obedient to the Father who had put him on earth, who had sent him to usher in a new kingdom with new cultural norms, with new standards, with a new way of life. And so he goes through Samaria. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who, is, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. We'll stop reading there for now. We'll look at a couple of more verses later, but let me pray for us in the reading of God and the teaching of God's word. 
Father, thanks for this uh, opportunity to open your scriptures. We pray that you would bless it. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, as your scriptures say, piercing our hearts. Would you do just that? Would you pierce our hearts with your word this morning? Would you simply use me as a vessel to bless your people, to shape us and mold us into what you would have us be? All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's three things I want to draw out of this text for us to see this morning. And let me just say from the get-go, there are legitimately four or five sermons in this chapter. And there's a lot, even a lot that I just read that I'm not really going to be able to touch on. Uh, But there's three things that I just want to hone in on here and understanding that these other things uh, would be for other sermons on a different day, but no less important. And the first thing I want you to see, I want us to enter into is this. As we watch Christ interact with this Samaritan woman, we see that his grace engages. And it engages in two primary ways. First, his grace engages across cultural barriers. There's language here in this text that even even though we're 21st century America, we can begin to pick up on some things that would have been so obvious and plain to a first century Jewish person. In verse 7, look at, look at verse 7 again with me. It says this, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now there's two words in that short little sentence that to a first century Jewish person would have been alarm bells going off. Major red flags, don't talk to this woman. And it was, the two words are woman and Samaritan. Because for a Jewish man in the first century, Again, with this background of great hatred and animosity between these two groups, a Jewish person would not have engaged with a Samaritan person in this context. And furthermore, he certainly wouldn't have engaged with a woman. Not only did you have the issue of Jewish and Samaritan, where according to Jews, Samaritans were below them, but then also in both Samaritan and Jewish cultures, women were of less value and standard. So you had working against this woman, both the fact that she was Samaritan and even lower on the totem pole, a woman. And what Jesus as a good Jewish man should have done and what any other Jewish man in that context would have done is as he saw the Samaritan woman moving towards where he was sitting, he would have simply done this. He would have seen her and he would have walked away. There would have been no engagement whatsoever. There would have been no conversation whatsoever. So he engages in the conversation with her and it startles her. She's bewildered. He says, give me a drink. Now, it said earlier in the text that Jesus was tired and wearied from his journey. Just a side note here, this speaks to the full humanity of Christ. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. We have a hard time reconciling how that can be true in our finite minds, but what exists in the infinite, we can't always explain in the finite. But Jesus was fully divine, fully God, but it didn't lessen his humanity in any way. He was thirsty and tired, just like any of the rest of us would be. And no matter how thirsty or tired or desperate a Jewish man would have been for water, he would have never asked a Samaritan woman for it. Yet Jesus does it. He asked her, this woman that in the standards of culture and society has nothing to offer him. Nothing, much less the fact that she doesn't realize that she's talking to the Savior of the world, God himself incarnate in the flesh. 
and he asked her for a drink. Now what's even bigger, a bigger issue with this is not only is he talking to a Samaritan woman, but he's asking her for something that according to Jewish law was completely forbidden. He's asking for a drink, and the implication is that she would have understood is that I'm going to use your drinking vessel because I have nothing. And in the way that the Jews in the first century interpreted the law, they said that there is absolutely no sharing of vessels, eating or drinking vessels with Samaritans. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is looking at the man-made Sinful, driven by sinful desires and prefer- preferences. He's looking at man-made cultural barriers and he's saying, this is silly. This is stupid. What I care way more about than whatever law is in place that wants to ostracize and separate people from each other is I care about this person as an individual made in the image of Christ, made in the image of God. And so these silly barriers that have been set up, I'm going to bust through those. I'm going to break through those. I'm going to destroy those and bring them crashing down. And this woman cannot believe that it's happening. You'll notice her response was in verse 9. She said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus goes on from there. I mentioned that I'm not going to be able to talk about everything that's in this passage. And he gives her this beautiful presentation of that he can offer her living water. And she totally doesn't get or understand. She misses that he's talking about himself and he's speaking in the spiritual realm. He's speaking metaphorically. And she only thinks that he's thinking and speaking in a physical sense. And she's going, man, give me this water. Where can I get this living water where I never have to to come here again and, and fetch water? But in relation to the cultural issue that he engages her across cultural barriers, I want to ask you a question. How often do we make decisions to engage or not to engage with someone based on cultural norms and appearances? I don't know about you, but I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I was convicted even as I was putting this sermon together and thinking through it and praying through it about how uh, popped into my mind that I've had a child who has played sports recently and and, uh, they've had a coach that I just didn't like. It was a coach who I didn't enjoy or, or, or like how he interacted with the kids on the team. I didn't like how he spoke to them, how he yelled at them, how he handled himself. And it was really easy for me to sit on the top row of the bleachers where I like to sit. So I had the fence at my back and I can, you know, be nice and comfortable. It was really easy for me to watch him down on the field and draw all these conclusions about this man. All kinds of conclusions about his character, all kinds of conclusions about his mindset and why he's doing this and why he's doing that. It was really easy for me to sit on that top row of the bleachers with my nose up in the air and think self-righteous, judgmental thoughts to this man. And then it hit me. I've never talked to him. I don't know him. I'm drawing, a conclusion from a, I'm drawing conclusions from afar about him, and I've never met him. I've never taken the time to walk off the top row, down onto the field, extend a hand, and say, thanks for coaching my kids. Man, I'd love to meet you for lunch or dinner one day just to get to know you. You seem like an interesting guy. That'd be the nice way of saying, I think what you do is kind of off, but it's interesting. Let's talk. 
I've never engaged him. I've never engaged across the cultural barriers, and it wouldn't be cultural, it would be just heart barriers in my own heart. Because it's a lot easier to group people into different categories and different assumptions and then judge from afar and draw conclusions and say, I will not engage with that person. You know, it's interesting, I think about the book of John as a whole, the gospel of John. The apostle John is writing this, and he, he was the best friend of Jesus. I mean, what, what incredible, I, mean, I just think about John sometimes, like, yeah, I was best friends with Jesus. He spent more time with Jesus than anybody else. And at the very end of his gospel, he says this, the very last verse of this book, he says, there were so many stories that Jesus did that if we tried to write them all down, there would not be enough books in all the world to contain the stories. Which tells me this, that John, knowing Jesus as he did and seeing all the various things that he did and all the conversations that he had, he had to be incredibly selective about what he included in his gospel. And then you consider the fact that half of his gospel, gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death on the cross and his resurrection. So then you say, okay, I'm only going to devote half of this gospel that I'm writing to what Jesus did in the other three years of his ministry. And so he has to be very selective so that people see and perceive what Jesus was all about. And you ask the question, well, why did he pick this story? Why did he include this one? Why was this one so important? And I think it's because one of the main things that John is wanting us to see about our Savior is that he is ushering in a new kingdom. He's the king. And he's ushering in a new kingdom with new standards that are about new cultural norms where we reach across these lines and we engage like he does. I, um, you know, I've heard several people say recently in conversations I've had with them on posts on social media, I've heard the word surprised often. Man, I'm just so surprised that we are still dealing with so many racial tensions in our culture, in our country. And I get that, and I don't think surprise is a bad word to use, but, I, but there's a part of me that goes, well, I'm not really surprised. Because this is nothing new. This has been going on with mankind from the beginning of time. As soon as sin entered the world, animosity between people and people groups has been in effect. There's nothing new. And listen, hear me on this. We need to be good citizens. We need to participate in voting and electing officials that we think would bring change and in, 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 in what we long to see. And, and we need, maybe God calls us to participate in a demonstration or a protest or to vote for a certain piece of legislation that's going to help with some of these racial tensions. We need to do that. We need to be involved. But, but we also need to understand, as much as we believe that, we also have to believe even greater that the only way that the change that we so long for is ultimately going to come is when the people of God live like kingdom people following after a king who is ushering in new cultural norms that we look at all these cultural norms that the world has set up through the sinful desires and preferences of man and we say that's silly. That's stupid. Like we're not going to honor that because we're a part of a new kingdom that engages across cultural barriers. And moves towards people and pursues people with grace in the same way that Jesus has pursued me with grace. We're not content to sit on the top row of the stadium seat and draw conclusions from afar about people and say they're this way, they're this way, they're this way. Without getting onto the field and extending, extending our hand and saying, let's spend time together. I read an article this week 
you may have seen it. It's certainly been making its rounds, and it's, it's really awesome. It's about a, a 58-year-old man named Daryl Davis. He's an African-American man who, for decades, under the radar with very little acclaim, for decades he's been befriending uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan and uh, other white supremacists. He's just been reaching out to them. And he sits in a room with them, and there was an interview, there was a video interview that went along with the article, and it, he said in the video, he said this, he says, I, I just, if they'll meet with me, I just sit down with them and I say this, how can you hate me when you don't know me? And the most beautiful part of the story is that hundreds, literally hundreds of these men have given up their allegiances to the Klan and other white supremacy movements because of this one relationship. And what, the best part is that when they decide this is not for me because of this relationship, he asks, can I have your robe and your hat, your white robe and your hat? And they give it to him when they say, I'm no longer going to do this. And his closet is full of all these robes and hats that he has collected. Now listen, I don't know if Daryl, I don't know if he's a believer. The, the, the article was, was a secular article. It didn't speak anything about faith. But I'll say this, whether he knows Jesus or not, he's living like a kingdom person. And he's engaging people across cultural barriers and extending grace to them and moving towards them in the way that Jesus has moved towards us. Jesus also engages this woman. He engages her heart. Look at verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What we, we saw something earlier in the story. We saw something where it said that she was drawing water at the sixth hour. Now, most commentators, almost all commentators agree that this, is, this means noon. That the sixth hour in Jewish timekeeping meant noon. It's the heat of the day. What this tells us, if we dig a little deeper, is that this woman is going to, to get water at a time when no other women in the village went. The women in the village in that day and time would have been tasked with getting the water either early in the morning or late in the evening when it was the cool of the day. This woman is coming in the heat of the day. There's a reason for that. She's ostracized. She's the least in the marginalized because as Jesus begins to prod at her heart, we begin to see why. She's an immoral woman. She's been with lots of men. And the one she's with right now is not even her husband. She's not even married. And Jesus isn't condemning her. He's prodding because she is not perceiving that what he's talking about is a living water from him. And so he begins to move into her heart so that she begins to see her need for a savior. This woman is rejected. This woman is broken. This woman is excluded from the people around her. And Jesus says, I want your heart. And when you couple that with the previous chapter, John chapter 3, we didn't look at this, but I would encourage you to, to read it on your own. John chapter 3 is an encounter with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was the very opposite of this woman. Nicodemus was a social elite. He was influential. He was possibly, probably wealthy. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. There were 72 men who served on the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish Supreme Court. And this man comes to Jesus, and Jesus engages him at the heart level as well. And what we begin to see about Jesus is this. No matter where you are on the spectrum of influential and wealthy and significant to ostracized and least and broken, Jesus wants your heart. And he moves into both of those hearts and everything in between with compassion, with grace. And he pursues. 
the heart of his people. And what we begin to see as we read and look even deeper is that what Nicodemus represents and what the woman at the well represents is that's us. That's who we are. Whether we're the proud and the arrogant, the influential and the significant, or whether we're the least and the broken and the ashamed and the ostracized, or anything in between, wherever we are on this grand spectrum, Jesus says, I care, I love you, and I'm going to move towards you. And I'm going to pursue your heart. The second thing that we see in this story, the second big thing I want you to see is this, is that the grace of Christ enamors. The grace of Christ enamors. Look at verse 25. It says this, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, so get this. This woman is in this conversation with this man who she doesn't realize is the Savior. And as Jesus is engaging her, it's causing her to have thoughts about the Messiah, the one who is to come. And so she just simply makes a statement. Man, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us these things. Not knowing who she's speaking to. And then he says, I who speak to you am he. This is a reference, an allusion back to the language of Yahweh in the Old Testament when God revealed himself to Moses in the, in the burning bush, and he says, you tell them that I am who I am sent you. I am the great I am. This is him alluding that. This is the one who sits in front of you. That's me. I am him. And it's at this moment that we can implicitly see, as the text continues, this is when her eyes were opened. This is when she saw Jesus, and she began to be enamored at him and marvel at him. Look what happens, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled, that he was talking with a woman. So they're marveling too, but for very different reasons. And no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So, so think about what's happening here. This woman who shows up in the middle of the day, who's so ostracized and excluded by her own people that she has to go in the middle of the day to avoid the judgment of the other women because they don't want to be around her. This woman who suddenly has encountered the Savior of the world and her eyes have been opened to who he is, is so enamored with him, has been so transformed by him in this instance, in this relationship with him that she now has in this conversation with him, that she leaves her water jar and the woman who, wa- who walked up in shame with her head hung low is now running back into the city to a people who have totally shunned her. And with her head held high now in the broad daylight, not walking in the shadows in shame, but with her head high saying, you've got to meet this man who I just encountered. And I know you don't trust me and I know you don't like me, but believe me, I'm different. And they can see the difference in her because she's coming back and talking about this when she normally wouldn't have. And she says, come see the one who told me everything that I've ever done in life. And they come. And as the text continues... We read that many believed, many in this village believed and followed Jesus because of this woman's testimony. It's awesome. And it leads me to the third point because you may hear this. You may hear this and you may say, man, that's great, but I can never do that. I, I, just, I just don't have it in me to go and tell. This was the instinct of this woman, by the way. It was just instinctive for her to meet Jesus, be so enamored by him that she would tell others about him instinctively, joyfully. You may hear, man, okay, I follow Jesus, but I just, it's not sure I could ever do that. And the answer to that is, no, you can't. 
You say, is that okay for him to say? Yeah, you can't do it. Within our own power, we can't do it. But the third point I want you to see, and we're going to go outside of this particular text to see it, is that the grace of Christ empowers. I want to look at three verses quickly from John, later on in the book of John, where he gives us some insight into why we can do exactly what the woman at the well did. John 14, 12 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. A few verses later, in verse 26, same chapter, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And then a few chapters, two chapters later, John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. You know, you think about the story of this, this Samaritan woman. She didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. She had met Jesus and she believed, but the Holy Spirit was not poured out until Christ had ascended in the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. And yet there was this sense of marveling and empowering that was going on just from meeting Jesus that led her to tell others about him. But friends, we have something so much better than what she had. I mean, what the scriptures tell us is that, is that God himself, for those of us who follow Jesus, who've placed our faith in Christ, that God himself dwells within us, that we are united to Christ, that he is in us, that we are in him, and that through this union, we have the power of God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, giving us the same power to do what he did. But did you catch what it said in John fourteen twelve? What Jesus said, he said, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And then get this, listen to this. Don't miss this because this is mind-blowing. He says, and greater works than these will he do. Like, think about that. He's, he's saying that greater works than Jesus we will do through the power of the Spirit within us. And let me tell you, that we struggle with that. We read that and we scan over it because we go, that, that can't be true. Really? Greater works than Jesus? According to Jesus, yes. We have the Spirit of God in us to do the work He has given us. We have the power to make disciples. Let me tell you this story that so far in my ministry career, probably one of the greatest highlights that I've been able to be a part of was just last week. Uh, just last week, I was able to go um, and be a part of teaching the scriptures to about 50 college golfers through this great ministry called College Golf Fellowship. And this was hosted at the home of Zach Johnson. If you're familiar with golf at all, you'll probably recognize his name. He's a, he's a very successful PGA golfer, won a couple of majors. And, but that's not, the, that's not the biggest thing about Zach. The biggest thing about Zach is that he loves Jesus. And uh, he and his wife have built this amazing home. And one of the big reasons that they built the home that they did was so that they could host big groups like this and, and have retreats like this. So we have four sessions together. And, and man, it was just awesome getting to open the scriptures with these guys. Uh, one of the afternoons that I was there, we played golf. Get this picture in your mind. College golfers, Zach Johnson, Me. I don't claim to be a good golfer. I enjoy playing golf, but I'm not very good. 
And this particular day, I actually played decent for me. I shot in the 90s, which I'm like, hey, I'll take that any day. We get to the 18th hole, and Zach had been going around uh, playing with different groups throughout the course of the round, and he ended up on our, my, the group I was with on the last two holes. So we're on the 18th tee. We're getting ready to tee off. And I just said, hey, Zach, would you, I, I'm, I'm not, you're not going to hurt my feelings by telling me something. Like, I, don't, I know I'm not great at golf. Would you give me a quick lesson? And he says, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm, yeah please do. And he goes, okay. He said, the first thing I noticed is that you have a very weak grip, and grip matters probably the most of anything in golf. And I'm going, Really? By the way, all, the, all you guys I've played golf with, you've never told me this. I'm mad at you for not telling me this. I thought it was the swing. Apparently, it's the grip. Or for me, it's both. But he starts working with my grip. And he starts situating my hands in ways to where I'm going, this just feels unbelievably awkward. And I can already tell this is not going to be a pretty swing. But I want to honor the coach. He's won majors. I haven't. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what he says. So I'm holding the club in this awkward way, and then he's telling me, swing to right field, because you have a tendency to come too quick through with your left shoulder. I'm not going to bore you with all that. But anyway, he says, swing. So I'm going, okay, this is not going to be pretty. Unbeknownst to me, there's one of the college students who's standing over here with a camera. Awesome. So, <laughs> so I'm standing here. Sure enough, I come back with my poor back swing, and I come through, and I miss the ball so bad <laughs> that I nick it just enough to where it shoots between my legs <laughs> off my left heel and settles 10 feet behind me. Now I've tried to frame this to my buddies that I have now hit the most extraordinary shot in golf history, <laughs> that I have swung as hard as I can, hit the ball and it went 10 feet backwards. <laughs> and in case you just want to prove, here's a picture. <laughs> That's Zach, by the way, pointing it out. <laughs> and he was great. He was incredibly gracious and he didn't make fun of me, which was really nice of him to not make fun of me. But here's why I tell you the story, not just for self-deprecation purposes, but to tell you this, what I needed way, way more than coaching from Zach Johnson in that moment is I needed Zach's ability. Because here's the reality. Zach could have coached me for a couple of hours. He could have coached me for days. And the bottom line is I'm not going to swing a club like Zach Johnson. And maybe eventually I could get there, but more than likely, no, I'm never going to be at the pro level, right? Let me just say that again. I will never be at the pro level. That's never going to happen. And if there was some mystical way that Zach couldn't just coach me, but that he could actually indwell me, he would actually give me his ability, then that's a game changer. That changes absolutely everything. It's not just I know what to do, it's that I have the power to do it. And this is what Jesus is telling us. He's saying, look, when I go away, it's actually to your advantage. Most of us have thought, man, if I could just have Jesus with me, I could do this thing. And you know what he says? I got something even better, and you have it. You have him. You have God in you. You have the spirit of Christ in you. And you have the power to do what I've called you to do. There's many of us who, we're not even picking up the club when it comes to making disciples. Because we're so afraid of missing the ball. There's others of us who have picked up the club, but we're missing and we're swinging and a miss, swinging and a miss, swinging and a miss over and over again because we're trying to do it in our power. And what we need to hear this morning is that God has called us into this beautiful ministry of reconciliation to where he says, you can do it. And I've given you the power to do it. Pick up the club and swing. Let me do it through you. I dream often. I mean, dream, not like sleep dream, but like I'll find myself having thoughts daydream thoughts of what heaven will be like. And I've thought often, 
man, I can't wait for the day. And we, we don't know how heaven's going to go down, but I, I kind of dream that it'll go down like this, that we're in the presence of the king and we're marveling at him in ways that just we've never even thought of and we're adoring him. And somebody walks up to me who I've never met and who in fact lived centuries after me. And he says, thank you, you changed my life. And I said, what? How, how is that possible? And he says, you discipled so-and-so who discipled so-and-so who discipled so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so who discipled me. Thank you for changing my life. And we'll meet in heaven. And you know what the best part of that is? Is that because it's heaven, there is no sin. And so I won't be tempted to be prideful about that. There will be no, well, you're welcome. It will be face on the ground. Praise you, Jesus, that you can use a sinner like me to impact and influence other sinners around me. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that pursues us. Thank you that you have rescued us. You've called us out of the muck and the mire with a grace that pursued us when we weren't even looking for it. Jesus, thank you that you have pursued our hearts faithfully, relentlessly, like you did this woman at the well all those years ago. And Father, we want to take uh, just a moment here to just spend a little bit of time in silence confessing to you our unwillingness to believe that you can use us. Our unwillingness to reach across cultural barriers and heart barriers to engage those that you've put around us, providentially those that you've put around us. And so Father, even in this moment of silence here, would you hear our confessions of unwillingness? Would would you hear our hearts as we pray to you? Father, even as we confess, we're thankful. We're thankful that the blood of Jesus covers a multitude of sins. And that for those of us who are in Christ, you have filled us with your spirit. And you've declared us righteous. And you adore us. And we want to walk in obedience to you. Father, I pray for those who are possibly in the room this morning who are just investigating this whole Christianity thing and not sure about all this. And I pray that their eyes would be opened even now as we pray in this very moment, the way that you open the eyes of the Samaritan woman to see your beauty, to marvel at your grace, and to be empowered with your spirit. Would you have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.